Today's episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Intermission. Uh, my name is Michael Snydell, and I am one of the chairs of the Film Stage Show and the host of Intermission, the podcast you're listening to right now. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to uh, Fang Li, and uh, we're going to be talking together about uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, The Meetings of Anna. This film is um, available right now on the Criterion channel. As I've uh, talked about in previous episodes, the main uh, kind of stipulation of this podcast is we will talk about uh, a single art house, experimental, or foreign film, as long as it's available on some type of streaming. I, I don't want to, you know, force anyone to commit any crimes or, or uh, <laughs> and, you know, just make it easier for people to see these things. Uh, Fong, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, so my name is Fong, and um, I'm a freelance critic based in Paris. I started um, writing and I was studying in the U.S. Um, I have uh, studied film studies, and I'm from Vietnam. To kind of start, I w- wanted to give a little bit of background uh, about uh, Chantal Ackerman. She's uh, a Belgian filmmaker, but someone who primarily spent her life in, in France, as, as I understand it. So yeah, she, she does. Paris. Yes, uh, she does uh, certainly have some connections, and I, I think you can certainly feel a certain dissonance in a number of her films between, you know, uh, being caught between countries and, and caught between places, uh, in particular, in particular, this film, for sure. Yeah, for so, sure. So why did you want to talk about uh, this particular film? What is your general relationship with it? So the first time I watched it was about four years ago. And I was in Vietnam at that point. I just got back from being in the US for four years. And that was a couple of months before I moved to London. So that was a very transitional period for me. And I think that was why I had a very sort of visceral response to the sense of rootlessness and numbness and isolation um, in the meetings of Anna. And last year, I was doing a lot of research on psychogeography and cinema, and I sort of dove back into meetings of Anna again. But this time is a more academic approach. So I think my relationship with it is sort of twofold because it's still a very personal, emotional movie for me. But now it's also an academic object as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly... I think you could say Ackerman's body of, of work, it, it, it really kind of uh, divides that interesting fine line between, you know, academic and, and pleasure. And, you know, it's I, I found her, her film so interesting because they, they never really provide or they don't immediately provide an, an easy in uh, for the most part. Like uh, there's a mm-hmm. lot of oblique decisions that obviously I will be less, uh, 
I, I can make less generalizations shortly, but I do want to talk more about uh, psychogeography, which is a uh, which is a philosophy or a. I, I, it, would that be categorized as a philosophy? I, I don't have the. It's, it's a kind of philosophy. It's a kind of practice. It's a kind of science. Okay. It's a bit vague, and <laughs> um, and the guy who sort of coined it, which is um, Guy Debord, he's a yeah. he's a Marxist thinker and artist, a filmmaker as well. And um, he coined the term. So it's been around for a while, but he's officially formally coined the term in 1955. And it's basically about um, the study of the behavioral and emotional effects that an environment, specifically an urban environment, can have on its inhabitants. And it's essentially a very radical um, approach and, and practice because it advocates for a more tactile and aware engagement between a person and their spaces instead of the labor-centric um, consumerist relationship that a capitalistic society favors. Um, so it's, it's basically about being aware of the spaces that you occupy, which I think is very um, prominent in the in the works of Eggman, for sure. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I, I mean, I think like it's for sure like most explicitly in something like News from Home or um, yeah. you know from the East and and, and things along uh, and sorry docs along those lines, but also um, yeah, so many so many of these films are, are about the relationship to spaces and and the relief that something like going outside provides. Yeah, absolutely, and the, the implication the implication of spaces as well because spaces carries a lot of political and uh, p- political meanings and especially not to bring the pandemic into this, but if you think about New York for instance, how different neighborhoods are affected so differently um, during this pandemic, you know, there's a lot of class um, implication and political implication that come with spaces. And um, I think the works of Eggman really encourage you to be aware of spaces because the way she edits, the way the films are edited and the way they're filmed really call attention to the space, not just the character themselves. Okay. I I think we've provided some initial context, but before we get into the film at, uh, as a whole and really start digging into the meeting Savannah. I, I want to say uh, thank you to our continual sponsor, uh, Mubi, uh, which uh, Mubi is a st- uh, streaming service that provides uh, 30 films for 30 days. And uh, their film of the day is part of a double bill from uh, Amir Kustarika. I apologize if I butchered that in any way. Um, And the description reads, uh, probably breaking all the safety rules that ever existed. Amir Costa Rica's Life is a Miracle is a zany and surrealist vignette of Yugoslavia on the brink of the Bosnian War. A cacophonous, swirling, and drunken celebration with tinges of tragedy and criticism surrounding the conflict. That's pretty persuasive <laughs> to make me want to watch that, I have to say. <laughs> and if you would like to try a free uh, a free trial of Mubi, you can go to mubi.com slash filmstage. So now we can uh, get into the movie that we talked about. We already talked uh, a tiny bit about the context of Ackerman and in her career and... Uh, 
let's let's rip off the bandaid right away. So Afang <laughs> and I have a an interesting mutual blind spot in the case of Ackerman. And when I mean when I say interesting, I mean foundational. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the sense that so in my experience, I have tried to watch uh, Jean Dielman about five times in the last decade. And each time I've gotten <laughs> gotten about an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, some of those I wasn't in the mood. Some of them I just stopped it and didn't come back. And so what, why have you not... Uh, to, to shame you, Fong, why have you not <laughs> seen John Dealman yet? <laughs> I think I was waiting to see theater. Because I really, I, I, not to, I mean, obviously, own films are better to to see in the theater, but especially with longer films, it does, it is better to see in the theater because there's nothing to distract you. It's just you and the screen. So I guess I was sort of waiting for it, and also I was sort of not in the mood for it. I guess because <laughs> I watch movie in a very erratic ways. I don't really have a list of movie that I feel like I need to go through. It's very random, like. On the day, I feel like I'm watching something and then I watch it. And then for some reason, Jane Dillman just never sort of popped up as something that I want to watch for the day. Um, yeah, I think that's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's totally fair because it's such a, you know, it's it's such a durational cinema. <laughs> like it, it, <laughs> it does require you to, you know, f- fully get kind of lulled into its, its, uh, very meticulously repetitive <laughs> rhythms. Um, yeah. I, I've, so I've been in struggling the past few days to kind of uh, make sense of, of my feelings about, about this film because I can't say that I particularly enjoyed it until maybe the last 45 minutes. Mm. But <laughs> I also think it potentially changed the entire way I look at film. <laughs> And uh, like retroactively felt like something that was always there, but could never Mm -hmm. pinpoint Um, like it's it's not thematically. It's not formally similar whatsoever, but in the same way, it feels in the same conversation and is canonically as something like Breathless or or Battleship Potemkin to me. Mm -hmm. Like I I find Mm -hmm. them fully arbitrary as an experience, to be honest, but they now feel so uh, immovable (laughs) is kind of how I feel about it. Mm. I don't know. I think when I was watching it, I feel kind of at home. It's it's sort of the kind of movie that I like because I quite like repetitions. (laughs) And I watched something recently and watched uh, Jacques Rivet, La Belle Noiseur. And it's sort of the same thing because he's painting the same thing. He's sort of trying to paint, um, you know, the plot is like, the painter trying to paint Emmanuel Biard every day and it's just yes. painting every day. Quite like that. I find a lot of repetition, which is what Delphine Siric character must have been feeling when she's doing the same thing every day. So I find it very comforting. Um, and like the last 45 minutes, obviously, is very disturbing because of how her routine is disrupted and now sure. everything falls apart. And I don't know, I, um, I quite enjoy that. Enjoy is the wrong word, but it sort of it suits my sensibility a lot, is what I meant. I have a, a soft spot for character who seem to have everything like in control. They're like so in control, entirely wound up, and then somehow something happened and then they fall apart and everything is sort of <laughs> 
sort of split all over. It does, it's sort of my thing. So when I watch it, I was like, oh, it's kind of my kind of movie. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating because I, I think what it is to me is, is it almost feels so fundamentally like an exercise at a certain point that like, mm-hmm. I like, I, I've absolutely like adored pretty much every other Ackerman film with the exception of I, I, I'm not like wild about her her first short but I find that also uh, which is uh, Sate Ma um, yes thank you um, w- which is you know just the total polar opposite of Shunt- or of uh, Jean Dielman. Um which um, yes I, yes I that's do think right it's, it's fascinating because I was thinking about my mom a lot while watching Jean Dielman, mm. uh, you know, it can't help that. Can't help that. No. A movie. You watch a given movie. You gotta think about your mom. Like that's just <laughs> how it goes. So damn homesick. Uh, it's, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah. Cause it, it, it's strange though, because I, that almost felt derogatory and feeling that way. Cause there's just also such an, <laughs> an undercurrent of, you know, this certain, uh, you know, a fiery melancholy. Like even before things fall apart, there really is something stultifying about, like very mm-hmm. intentionally stultifying. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a fantastic um, interview when Eggman talked about the film and she compared how the routine that Syriac characters is going through is sort of trying to replace the Jewish routine, Jewish rituals that a lot of Eastern Europeans um, family have. Um, so even in the routine, even though it seemed very very domestic and everything, there's a lot of trauma that's in it. I think that's probably why even though there's like nothing happening in the first two hours or something in the film, there's still a hint of some sort of traumatic undercurrent that you can yeah, no, I, I, I think that's totally reasonable. I, I, and I wanted to, uh, not only did I want to uh, shame us, but I also wanted <laughs> to specifically use this as kind of a beginning way to talk about, you know, the the dichotomies of of characters in in uh, sorry in Ackerman's films because I, I feel like in a way Jean Dielman is the bluntest distillation of her interest mm-hmm. in this certain uh in this certain drift which i believe drift is a word that they were specifically using in relation to psychogeography yes. as, as well uh, if i remember yeah. correctly so i so to just kind of start um with the the meetings of anna then i i think it it has such an interesting uh, it has such an interesting in place in, in her filmography because, you know, like uh, like not only Jean Dielman, but there are, you know, parts that uh, feel reminiscent of uh, Jetu Elal. There are mm-hmm. parts that literally I, I couldn't stop thinking about when she uh, has pieces of the, the peas right outside that door of, mm-hmm. uh, of Chantal eating yes. the sugar. <laughs> and la nuit and um like like all of these i guess what i find so so fascinating about them is th- their restlessness and mm-hmm. in in comparison to the, the you know always like 
exquisitely precise, but ultimately like static framing. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's to just put a bow on uh, how I feel like I have seen Ackerman in so many filmmakers I I love. It's fascinating to look at someone like uh, Claire Denis, who Mm -hmm. I love, but also is nicer to her characters to the point where (laughs) she does want them to find some warmth. Like, like in a mm-hmm. way, you could say something like uh, Tala Nuyet is like, you know, polar opposite of something like Denise Friday Nights, <laughs> where, mm-hmm. where someone is finding a deep, uh, a deep warmth in that kind of intimate one-off. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. And I mean, the color palette of, of the meetings of Anna is just, you know, everything looks the same. You can't you can't really tell that she's go from so the first so the, the journey of her is just go from Essen, Essen, I guess in, in Germany to Cologne and then yes. she go to Brussels and then she go to Paris, but you can't tell. If you don't if you not because like she mentioned in the dialogue, you can't tell because they look exactly the same. It's it's a very bizarre thing because she go from one transitional space to another, but only this transitional space have a kind of uniformity to it. Um, and I think when you talk about the redlessness and thing, it's very sort of anchored. In the, in the kind of spaces that Ackerman choose to photograph in meeting Savannah and in her the film that precedes it, its own hotels, rooms, and train uh, stations, its own very transient places that you can't really feel at home. Um, so I think it, it adds to this, the kind of rootlessness that you were talking about earlier. I, I think that that certain... Certain symmetry, like, you know, it has some relation to, you know, a certain banality that's become mm-hmm. common in even like especially contemporary European cinema. But mm-hmm. uh, but it's not like malevolent. Like it, it's not a it, it's 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 not necessarily platonic, but it's it's more like agitated, like like <laughs> like the mm-hmm. environments are almost poking at, at the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I think does bring you to what you were kind of saying about this certain, they, like, in a way, I almost feel like this movie is a, is about boredom, like, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's like most content moments is when it's unresolved. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just so fascinating to me, like, especially in relation to the rest of the filmography that so much of this film is about this, maybe not warring, but the, the clash between this possibility that she won't be a mother or that she's not following what she was supposed to and mm-hmm. her own desire to be independent. Mm-hmm. Like I, I find a, an, an early line is like, I, I don't think I tell myself anything. And I found that line so fascinating. I, in relation mm-hmm. To so much of the film seems like it is uh, trying to tell her to do something. <laughs> like all of these people <laughs> she meets just go on these long monologues about their past. I know it's it's so interesting because that's what so much of the film is about. It's all about her reaction or like a reaction to what's happening around her. Because it's also like, like it's always about the way she listens to people or the way she touches the services of space. I'm like very interested in spaces. I'm always coming back to the space. Sure. But is but I mean, if you look at the way that she films conversation in the meetings of Anna, it's never she never resort to the kind of classical 
um, shot revert shot when you film a conversation. Sure. It's always two people in either a full shot or medium shot, and they either facing the camera or have the back to the camera. But you always see their own bodies in full view. And on the one hand, it sort of um, it sort of subvert the kind of classical editing, but on the other hand, it also really showcases how their bodies interact with their surrounding and all the conversation that takes place in the film. It, they're also on on this very transitional and transi- transient place as well, a train station, it's like a train restaurants, um, and I think like. Like her primary concern in this film, I really do think is about the way Anna going through these spaces and meeting these people and how she reacted to that. I think. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're totally you're totally right, and I think it's I, I'm not sure whether I would have categorized this as a as a character study. That was actually the particular description on on Criterion, mm-hmm. uh, the Criterion Channel. And they called it one of her most penetrating character studies, which is not to say that it's not absolutely about Anna, mm-hmm. but I, I think you you totally just uh, got into that in the in the sense that like this this is not a film where you can easily kind of uh, a, a colon understanding of what Anna's viewpoint is on, on so many mm-hmm. of these things, like yeah, like it's. It's almost like rather than necessarily the relationship she has with people, with the exception of maybe her mom, there it's like degrees of alienation <laughs> is, is yeah. how I was thinking about it. I think it's very much about alienation and isolation. And I think the spaces um, are very important in that they reflect that as well. Because I remember there's that scene when she first, so the first hotel room she's in, she sure. comes in and then she sort of, it's only like eerily quiet and then she opens the window and then there's noise from outside comes in, but it's not like human voices or whatever. It's like the sounds of traffic and it's the sound <laughs> of the a factory nearby. And then she's like, listen for me. And then she closes it and then she turned on the radio and it's, it's still not like, you know, organic voice. It's like some kind of classical music and she listened to it for a while and then she turned it off. There's a, there's a real sense of detachment from any kind of, meaningful human connection in Anna's life. And it's, it's, a, it's an urban condition. It's a condition of um, urban life. And especially in the case of Anna, someone who just go from city to city. I, I'm curious, how did you specifically come to uh, psychogeography? I mean, it's certainly, I, I can't think of a more thematically relevant <laughs> idea, but it, how did you come to this uh, particular uh, philosophy, science, uh, et cetera? I, I went to a talk, and but he's, um, he's an expert in psychogeography, and sure. he was just talking about psychogeography, and I was like, oh my God, this is something that really, really, really speak to me, because I've always been interested in, in spaces and architecture. Um, but have never really like studied that much on it. Um, but when he talks about it, I thought, okay, I'm really like feeling what he's saying. And then afterward, we did a psychogeography pra- um, exercise. We did a derive, which is one of the things that Guy Debord said that you can practice psychogeography by doing an aimless wandering. So when you think about when you move through the city, it's always with a purpose, either for work or for leisure. And in both of those cases, they are all bound up in capitalistic um, impulses and tendency. You have to like work to make money or buy things. Um, But Guy Debord said that you can practice psychotherapy by just 
walking with no purpose, dropping on your motivation and just really immerse yourself in your environment. So we did an exercise where we take off our shoes and then we walk around in Paris barefoot and we flip a coin whenever we come to a crossroad. And if it's hate, we turn left. If it's tail, we turn right sort of thing. And we did that for like 30 minutes. And we also take notes of places that we can come into, places that are like forbidden to the public. And usually you don't notice things like that. I just, I noticed how many, how many things I don't usually realize, even though I walk a lot. You don't really look at... <laughs> You don't really look at the space that you can't come in. You don't really look at the advertisement. You, know, you don't really sort of take notes of where you're walking. And when you walk barefoot, it's like you're really touching the city. Because there's this idea of that you're not really touching the city, really. Because you're sort of detached from things and you're wearing shoes and everything. But when you're walking barefoot, you really sort of feel the pose of the city beneath your feet or whatever. And then when we walk across, I was with two other people. We walk across the um, the Montparnasse Cemetery and we try to come in and they wouldn't let it in. It's, it's this uneasiness when you're just really doing something that other people are not doing. Um, so I was really inspired by that. And then I read more things on psychogeography. And there has been a lot of writing that connecting psychogeography with literature, but not really with cinema. So people have done it, but it's not a thing usually in academia. So I, that's how I got into it. And I think Eggman's movie really, really fit into that because I think the Derry, the sort of aimless wandering, translate into the long take that she does in her movie. Because usually in sort of commercial filmmaking, you think when you film something, there's got to be like something has to happen. There has to be a purpose. But the way that she does the long take, especially in News from Home or Hotel Monterey, to sort of just keep things there and then let it sort of unfold. There's a kind of aimlessness to it that's very psychogeographical. And also I read that when she does um, the documentaries in the 1990s, like La Paz and South, and when she does the travel documentary, she doesn't really research things. She just sort of go to the place and then she film things which is very much a kind of what a psychogeographer would do. So that's how I sort of come to connecting the two things together. No, that, that makes, that makes total sense. And that, yeah. that kind of uh, gives a more um, concrete view to, to what you were saying specifically, or, or I guess what, what I was taking from her particular uh, approach to something like the long take. Because it, it's not Baroque, as you're saying. It's not about spectacle. Like, you're mm-hmm. not necessarily waiting for something to happen. As you're saying, you're almost waiting for that, uh, you know, um, anticlimax. Like, I, I mm-hmm. think particularly of... in. Interesting, an interesting scene here with, um, sorry, with Anna and uh, Ida, and they are, you know, she's asking whether she's hungry, and they go to a restaurant and then immediately leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're watching the whole time they walk there, and there, and that returns later when she goes to the pharmacy for, um, yeah, goes goes yeah. to the pharmacy. For- but also, 
also, I mean, it's speaks to this, this whole of psychogeography. It sounds a bit inconsequential, but it's a part of situationism, the larger framework of situationism, which um, Guy Debord wrote this book called The Society of Spectacle. And he argued that capitalism is a kind of spectacle. And especially when you live in a city, you see sort of capitalism manifest itself with com- commodities everywhere. And sure. it creates a false coherence that makes you feel like there's no difference between classes because we all participate in the same sort of com- consumerist routine. Um, so there's the illusion of coherence in a city. And when you do think that like you're walking around barefoot and you really immerse yourself in the environment and you notice the advertisement and everything, is it's a way to break away from that. And if you look at, like, to circle back into Ekerman again, um, when she does the long take and um, she theme, um the rec- the conversation in that, like, sort of not shot, reverse shot, she's, like, like break away from classical editing is is a, a parallel to that. It's a parallel of breaking away from the full sort of coherence that usually conventional filmmaking emphasizes. And you don't really get that from Ekerman film because she calls attention to the artificiality of it all. What's so weird about it, too, is is at times she does seem to follow this uh, this uh, this almost austerity, but then she pushes back on it in every every moment. I mean, the thing she does with the piece, it's not normal. You don't walk around in a hotel and then you pick up somebody else's shoes, look at the shoes, and then you eat the piece. No, it's, I think it's, I really think it's, there's a playfulness to it. And obviously troubling aspect to it as well, but it's a it's a attempt to resist what is considered acceptable and what they consider you know normal. When she does that, it's a break away from the sort of uniformity of spaces that surround her, especially because the shot that precedes the the, the shot with that she eat the pee of the corridors of the hotels when every single room looked the same and she's like dead in the dead center. And it's almost like she cornered in all of the sameness. And then she picked up the shoes and she eat the piece. <laughs> I think one of the strangest too, if we're talking specifically about spaces, well, the one in the hotel that made me deeply uncomfortable is when they're just having a long conversation in front of the concierge <laughs> and he just has to yes. look down while they're having like... You know, not quite a heart to heart, but it's a, it's a very like <laughs> involved conversation about each of their history and <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, I think that does again speak to you are constantly uh, thinking about that in in relation to space, and, and so it becomes yeah. to such a point where, as you were saying, it's not only just the medium and the wide shots that she prefers, but when she even takes a new setup or like there's like one angled shot, for instance, at the counter, <laughs> and it, it's just yeah, it's totally discombobulating <laughs> in the moments. Yeah, I mean, even like um, so that the guy Henrik that asked her to come to um, his daughter's birthday, literally a woman she just he yes. just met. And and then she he kept talking about like how his wife left him for a Turkish man and like how sad he is and and it's strange isn't it? like to, to just meet someone and then tell everyone that. But then you know it's also an evocation of the sort of alienation and isolation he must be feeling in his life that he latched on to Anna and just tells her everything. And it's interesting because I did some research on that and turned out 
there was a real trend during the 1970s with German popular novels, but characters yearn for the 1920s. They yearn for like a period before socialism, before like Nazi Germany, where they think everything is so much better, is, is there's so much more hopeful. And Heinrich said the same thing in the conversation about how his dad feel really hopeful in the 1920s. And he also talked about sort of, oh, what's happening to my country? I, I don't know who I am anymore. That's something that really sort of prevails, sort of looms over the whole film with this crisis of European identity. Because there's also a recession going on. No one is having any money. And, and, and that you see in news from home as well, because in the letter that her mom sent to, Ekman's mom sent to her is all about, oh, the recession is really bad. We're not having any money. And that's a symptom of urban life, of modernity as well. And it looms over the whole film. Yeah, I, I think the, the two things that are, are related as well to that certain, uh, you, know, an, you know, European anonymity uh, and like a, a sense of, trying to find that identity is you, at least, especially in that scene with Heinrich um, and, and to a lesser extent, that mm. scene with Hans uh, in the, in the train corridor, that reminded me a lot of, you know, the kind of resignment of like a uh, runner, uh, Werner Fassbender, mm-hmm. like that, that felt very much like that again, like that post Europe, I, it, it might not be quite genre, but it did seem like it was dabbling in something far more explicitly political in those moments. And as you say, yeah, for sure. I mean, no. everything she does with spaces yeah. is political, but it, it, I did find that unlike so many even art house directors of this time, you know, the characters in Ackerman's films don't really muse, you know, about philosophy in the same way as you know a uh uh sorry a uh, russellini or, or something you know something like journey mm-hmm. to italy or um mm-hmm. and i think even again speaking to that anonymity um you have that great scene too where she's uh talking to ida and she's like oh i thought you were polish yeah as in yeah. as in this idea that like it's all of these people are just kind of in this miasmatic you know uh mass like they're they all went through this but connection is just it's it's almost impossible in a way but the then the weird contradictory thing about ackerman's viewpoint is she seems to almost find a deep pleasure in anna's independence as much as like people are talking Mm. at her I really do feel how, you know, Ackerman's strange behavior almost becomes all the more normal in her films. Like there's, as we're mm-hmm. talking about with something like Jean Dielman, uh, very rarely in that routine, like you, you're right, there are gr- great like cultural warmth, like she's making pierogies and, you know, watching her <laughs> mold yeah. the meat is very <laughs> meditative in a strange way. Uh, but but it is, again, it feels so, so strange. Like, I, I, I and again, mm-hmm. going back to something like Denis, like Denis is ultimately more interested in narrative than uh, Ackerman, for sure. But yeah, I still think there are, are similarities uh, similarities in at least how their characters move throughout the world. Um, 
like I, I could mm-hmm. never imagine Ackerman, for instance, doing something as euphoric as, you know, the 35 shots of rum train sequence. <laughs> That's the difference between how Ackerman would shoot that mm-hmm. and how Denis would shoot that is, you know, the closest moment to peace in this is the ambience of of the train window being open. <laughs> like it's... No, I think... No, no, your point about narrative is very interesting because what I think specifically with Meetings of Anna, the narrative itself is the spaces and the movement. And Anna literally walks from one quote-unquote plot point to another. Like the the plot, if there is one, is driven by her literally walking and moving. And I read something very interesting um, when I was looking into psychogeography. And apparently, like, in modern Athens, like, in back in, like, Greece, um, the call vehicles of mass transportation is literally like a metaphor. So you go to work or you come home to take a metaphor, like a bus or a train. So stories are a bit like that. So when you go to places, you link places together, and then together they make sentences and itineraries. And I think in Meetings of Anna, it's very much like that because, like, the plot is literally of how she moves to one space to another and together they link into a Korean story so that you don't really have a sense of, like, climax or whether things follow each other in, like, a cause-effect kind of way. It's just literally her itinerary as she goes from one place to another. And I think that's something that's very radical to just, you know, the, the, form, of the, the, the form of the travel is the plot itself. But it's interesting that you brought up Hans, her conversation with Hans on the train. Yes. Because there are some lies in that conversation that really stuck with me about how he talks about, he thinks of France as being the space of freedom. Yes. And he's like obsessed with perfecting his accent so that as, as if some sort of mastery over language would gain him access to quote-unquote, freedom in France. And I read an interview where Ekerman just, like, she's really does not like living in Paris because she she really preferred New York over Paris because when she was living in New York, people weren't really, like, judging her for her accent. She felt more accepted. But when she was in Paris, she never felt like she was speaking French right because people would always sort of try to correct her. Because it's true, like, people do do that in Paris when you speak French. <laughs> But they they will try to correct you. Um, so it's she's felt like so much more of an outsider in Paris compared to in New York. And that's why I think that conversation is so 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 interesting because that guy really had this vision of coming to France, coming to Paris, and like feeling free. But he won't. There's there's you you can tell that it's it's not as simple as speaking French perfectly. You always feel like a, a kind of outsider, which is what Anna probably feels like a lot the way she's framed in the film. Do you think you found, uh, in that same way, uh, do you think you were partly, you gravitated to this film in particular, in part because of your, uh, not necessarily with the fluency of language, but uh, in terms of being in those different urban landscapes and, you know, having, uh, maybe not language, but going through those different cultures, uh, was that something where you where you were feeling like you were aligning with anything or if anything it made you more disconnected and i definitely can sort of get sort of an displacement um because i'm moving so much i move a lot 
and uh, I kind of get that. And I really like that detail in the last scene when her apartment doesn't look that much different from the hotel. There's not a lot of furniture. There's not really a lot of like personal stuff in her apartment. And yes, and I really do identify with that because um, in the past, I don't know, seven years or something, I've moved countries so much that when I move to an apartment, I don't really make an effort to buy anything because <laughs> I don't know whether I'm going to move next. And it can be the same relationship as well. And that's why Anna, like when she talked to her mom and she talks about how she had all these sort of encounters, but it's very transition. And that's what happened when you move a lot. You can't really like lash on a person because you don't know when you're going to move next. Um, so I can definitely see like why Anna had this sort of numbness to think because you move so much, you can't really be that attached or anything, which make her attachment to the Italian woman that she keeps trying to call so much more moving. Because when she talks about her, that's like the first time in the film that you really feel like she's anchored in something. I am curious, again, speaking from your perspective uh, related to that, then, you know, I, I feel like it's almost a Western mindset that makes me see th this character type and rootlessness as a certain dissatisfaction or a, a certain, you know, there's there's a negativity mm. to what, what I perceive of, of whether this character is having maybe not a happy life, but mm. a satisfying life. I, I, I'm curious, is, I, I, do, you, do you also see that relative negativity? I think she's adaptable to what she's doing. That's what she does. She's just like adapt to her, to her space. That's why I think space is like doubly more important in the film. But she just sort of adapted to her lifestyle, which involves a lot of traveling to different festivals. And sure. it's difficult, I mean, to say whether she's satisfied or not, because the film doesn't really allow you to have access to that. Like you don't even have a lot no. of close-ups. <laughs> You don't have a lot of close-ups of her face. Um, and even around Clément's um, performance, you know, you, she doesn't do a lot. It's very subtle. So you you sort of denied access into um, her inner space. But I don't know. I think, I think she just sort of adapted to it. But you can tell that she yearned for something more. That's why she keeps trying to call that number. Um, and something I, I like discover because I watched this film like a lot of times when I was doing my research and turned out. So the number that she always tried to call, it's not the correct number. It's the wrong number. And that's why she couldn't reach her. And the difference is like one digit when when she tried to call her lover in um, in Italy. Yes. Um, so she's like the whole time she tried to dial 271576. And she couldn't reach her. And, and she always think like the light is busy or something. But then in the end of the film, she got the message from, I think her name's Laura. And and she said, oh, my number is 2721576. So she missed the two. And somehow that's like minute detail that I guess most people miss because I missed it like a zillion time, even though I watched it so many times. Is what makes it so painful yeah. because you think things like modern technology, like telephone, can bring you closer to people, but just that one number can like, you know, deny you the pleasure of reaching someone you love. And isn't that just absolutely painful and tragic? That's that's so interesting to me because I have gone back and forth on whether 
I think Ackerman is a romantic director. I think she and when, is. When you describe, she is, but she's not. But uh, uh, again, she's all of all of these interactions. They they're ultimately fleeting, mm. and the romance is in that fleeting. But you know, it's not brief encounter or anything. Mm, yeah. It's, and I think like I, I think you finally saying that, which. That's a wow, that's a great touch. Um, it fully like crystallizes that, yeah, she's a romantic <laughs> director. Like, I, 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 but it's it's been very weird thinking back and forth about that question because I, I think it's it's strange too. And, and this came up with safe uh, a little bit because mm. we were talking about how. Uh, so much of the conversation around safe goes to numbness mm. rather than the possibility that she's feeling everything all at the same time too much. Mm. And uh, But I, I think that's, maybe it's not Western, but I, I think it's just kind of common psychological notion that something like numbness is something you need to get rid of. It's, it's something mm. that, you know, is, is an ailment. Mm. And I... The more time I spend with Ackerman, I don't think she believes that. <laughs> no, I think the thing is that I think it's also like hard back to conventional filmmaking. Like sure. It requires the character to do something to show that they have emotions. And Ackerman characters are constantly in a state of idleness, like not really doing anything or unproductivity, which in itself is radical. And that is sort of, you know, anti-capitalistic that they spend their time sort of doing nothing, quote unquote, doing nothing. But also I think she's romantic in the sense that Anna's, you know, the yearning, the yearning is more romantic than the sort of culmination of the romance itself. Like the fact that Anna sort of still yearning for something and still longing for something, which is evident in her effort to keep calling that number, make you realize that she's she's not numb to everything. She still wants something. And that sort of want and yearning is what makes her romantic in the sense i do find it interesting though that i'm I'm not quite sure uh which of these actions would be seen more capitalistic but uh, one of the the gestures that i've noticed uh, when you were specifically talking about idling and uh, that mm. yearning is that ackerman doesn't ever show characters sleeping and I feel like you mm. notice this in the meetings of Anna, especially because she spends a lot of time on beds. She's in that train mm. car, you know, where she's told to uh, stamp out the cigarette. And then she closes her eyes and is immediately interrupted. When uh, yeah. <laughs> when she's laying on the bed in the first hotel, her eyes are open. Like, mm. e- even the moment, you know, where uh, she's hugging her... Yeah, sorry. Hugging her, her mom is like is is a it's it's still not a totally restful moment. So like idling, mm. you know, idling obviously doesn't mean uh, not uh, sorry. It does connote a restlessness, but there's still something so strange to me about someone who is trying to continually push back against that cycle, but doesn't mm-hmm. ever allow her characters to go to sleep. Or cuts away before it happens. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think when I mean idle, it's just sort of taking a break from doing sort of labor-centric thing, I guess. Um, but yeah, like life still exists, and it sort of interrupts their their attempt to have some sort of complete <laughs> um, detachment from their surroundings. 
I guess that that again speaks to her just not wanting to play with conventional editing. But I think it's just all the more strange that so many of those transitions and as you were saying, plot points of her going to these different rooms and they go to those different rooms to be in in a rush to get somewhere else, which it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's just literally is like driven by Anna Musman, which is so interesting. And I love the bit. I love the bit when she's on the train and she meets Hans and everything. And there are that great shots of her in the corridor of the trains. And she was like trying to go somewhere to smoke, I guess. And then she gets squeezed in this very crowded corridor and she's stuck between a bunch of men. And it's interesting to me because I've read about, I'm also very into trains. So trains have sort of been theorized as sort of like a prison. Mm. Not to be like everything is a prison, but it's sort of like a prison because sure. when you're on the train, you're sort, of, you're sort of confined into this one space and you do everything according to schedule. When you get your meals, if you eat on a train, it's like on a very specific schedule. And it's even worse than being on a plane because on a plane, you're very aware that you're in a confined space. When you look outside, you see the cloud, you're like, this is not real. But when you look outside the train, you still sort of get some snapshot of like reality, some sort of movement. So there's an illusion of your like still being in a normal space in reality, but actually you're being totally confined and sort of incarcerated. And I think that sequence on the train really, really captured that because there was one moment when Anna tried to smoke. Yeah. And the, someone is like, no smoking. And she's like, oh, okay. And, and smoking is very important to Aikman. Um, so I think that's definitely a comment on that as well. Well, what I'd say about first about the train is, so Chicago is a place where I take uh, the L train. Every, mm-hmm. I, I, well, I used to before the quarantine. Before mm-hmm. the quarantine is always just a, <laughs> a note <laughs> for everything I say, apparently. Um, <laughs> I used to take the L every day mm-hmm. and I never particularly minded in the morning but but coming home was my least favorite thing and I would mm. sometimes stay at work hoping that there would be less people mm. just because the very possibility of not only being confined but I'm a very tall person mm-hmm. so and I'm not trying to have a pity party for that or anything but <laughs> I I always had to like contort my body and do some weird tippy toes stuff to mm-hmm. not get in people's ways. <laughs> so I, hearing that there's now a whole theory about this is, is oh my is god! Like... I can recommend you so many books about train because it's sort of my obsession. <laughs> because there's this thing as well, like when you think like train stations are very significant um, because they're sort of evocation of industrialization. Because before, so before the like in back in like the 17th century. Century, like 18th century, when you have 18th century, you have train station. The earliest design of train stations are like a shed, so it's like like a wooden shed or something. Um, but the train station, as we know now, it because of industrialization, and then you can have like mass-produced iron, which is very new. Before you had to like iron, like make iron by hand, but when you can produce irons like on mass, you can make all these like grids and stuff to make the train stations and things. So the train station, as we know now, is very much like a product of industrialization and comes with it is the sort of, you know, alienations and isolation. It's very complicated to be in train station. It's strange too, because I think the modernist interpretation makes it 
even even stranger to the point where like I'm realizing a great train movie from last year is Ashes Pierce White. I, I'm mm-hmm. just realizing it's all the more strange than when something like someone interacts with someone on a train. Like even something like The Commuter, <laughs> the recent Liam Neeson film, is predicated yeah. on the idea that a stranger would come to him and, you know, tell him that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, train, trains carry a lot of trauma and anxiety. Because I read that, like, Back in the in the 19th century, because trains like like the railroad are so new, there are so many there were so many accidents, and when there's an accident happened, like a lot of people die on a mass scale that only happened in like war or something. So there would be people who might not even be in in a train accident, but they get into a, a state of like numbness as if they've been in a train accident because. They think of being on a train as like having contact with a traumatic event. So it's very, very bizarre. And they even connected like trains and cinema sort of coming around at the same times. And when you're on the train, you can have this like sudden accident as a kind of shocks and things. And early cinema, when you watch a film, there's all this like event that can give you some sort of shock or traumatic um, experience out of nowhere. So there's always sort of like this relationship between trains and cinema and trauma. Sorry to nerding out on you for one moment. <laughs> no, no, this is so interesting. I, I don't mind at all. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm realizing it's then, it's then all the more bizarre that, you know, they never, I, I have to think it'd be a huge uh, budget issue, but they never instituted seatbelts on trains and things like <laughs> if it was such a major cause of so many casualties, it's it, it's so it is. A lot of people die. <laughs> so odd that yeah. Yeah, I could see that in the past. I, I have to think too, you know, I mean obviously you could talk about the the first, you know, one of the first films ever, but even something like the general, like the, the yeah. large set piece in the general had to be so traumatic to yeah. audiences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really it was really kind of like like early train travel, you're like on, on a train just like chilling and, and you can just die. <laughs> it's, it's when it happened it's like massive. Um but yeah, I think that's another thing that like really draw me to the meetings of Anna as well, because you know, it's all about train. And and something like News from Home too, like I mean my favorite scene of News from Home is when the one guy yes. turns his like no one really pays no one pays attention to the camera until this one guy. <laughs> I know. It's like it's fucking New York and no one cares. And this one guy just literally stare at them. I love that moment. And they stare they, he stared at the camera for like several minutes and then he just like give up and then he walked to a different car and I also love the moment there, there's a sequence when um, uh, Babette Mungo just like put the camera at like yeah. the door on on the train and it, like it opened and closed and that like a really long sequence and then you can see her, the reflection of the camera on the glass of um, the car entrance the door or whatever that was that was just brilliant and this is one of those things when I talk about like Ekman calling attention to the artificiality of filmmaking is one of those things. Like the guy staring at the camera or, or the fact you can see the reflection of the camera on the door. Like she's not interested in creating like quote unquote coherent reality in film. She's like, she wants to call attention to the fact that you're watching a film, which is very Such radical. like a fastidious simulation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And like it, it is interesting. You mentioned I, I, I can't remember where you can see that camera, but that's it's interesting to me too because I could see someone like Varda in her documentaries just being like, "Oh, hey, it's me with the camera," yeah. and doing it as a very playful gesture to remind people it's communal. It is, and the thing is that playfulness, yeah, and the thing is that playfulness and this sort of having fun and playing game is very essential mm. to psychogeography as well. They actually call that as like games, like practices, but also games when you just like wander around the city, because it also comes from a surrealist and Dadaist yeah. tradition. So they're just really sort of having fun and subverting, um, sort of like the normal concepts of living in a city. What are some other, uh, I, I don't mean to get away from Ackerman, but I'm just trying to get a sense if there is a point which they delineate, this is not psychogeography, but it's still about drift, yeah, you know, kind of a mutually exclusive situation. But the thing is that, like, once again, like, even Gideborg himself said that psychogeography has what he called, quote unquote, a pleasing vagueness to it. So do just, like, refuse to actually categorize it so it really depends on like how you read it and Gitterbart he thinks of cinema as a kind of like opium for the masses you think when you watch a film and you feel like you're watching like a coherent reality in reality it's not and his thing is that when he makes these films he's he called them anti-films and he like called attention to the editing and the fact that you're watching something that's like made by another human which is why I think he probably might like would have loved. I mean, he was alive when this when Ackerman movie came out. But it's sort of like they do alive with that sort of sensibility that you know you're not watching something that claimed to present reality at its best. It's very deliberate. It's very stylized what she does. I, I know you said they were alive at the same time. So I, has Ackerman specifically ever spoken about the influence of uh, Debord, or has Debord ever spoken specifically about Ackerman? Not really. I don't think so. This is just me <laughs> connecting these two things together. There are other people, like, I'm not saying like, I'm the first person to do this. There are other people, like, connecting um, psychogeography to Ackerman film as well. Because, you know, they just suit together so well. Especially especially news from home and Hotel Monterey. You know, it's just, it really is about exploration of space and its implication. And I still like the fact that in news from home, I mean, you know it's New York because you see the subway and then you see the taxis and everything, but you don't really see any monuments at all. You don't see, like, the Empire State. You don't see, um, you don't see like, the Statue of Liberty. And and it really goes with the sort of Guy Debord, what he was saying about how CT is a kind of spectacle. Um, she doesn't want to turn CT into a spectacle. It's more about really immersing the city. It seems like there was uh, some conversation about functionality too uh, within what, what mm -hmm. I was reading, which is all the more interesting. I, I, I love this scene where she's with her uh, with her mom, and she seems to be in a place that she maybe recognizes, but there's new stores there. Like it, it's not clearly mm -hmm. said whether she is very familiar with where she is or anything. Um, yeah, but I, I I thought that scene was so interesting. How she would like sort of look into the window of places that maybe seem familiar, mm -hmm. but also different enough that you realize that it's been a long time. Which is such a you know common sensation of going back to a hometown or something years later. 
Yes, it's very interesting. And also, like the scene when they're in the same bed together. And it was very interesting to me that she takes her clothes off, which is a bit strange strange to me. I don't know how, like, Belgian people roll, but it's a bit strange that you take off your clothes and, like, to sleep with your mom. But it's, it's, it's making me think about, you know, queer spaces and the sort of the impossibility of fighting queer spaces in the city because so much of urban planning is to sort of retain some kind of normalcy, some kind of heteronormativity. Yeah. And it's impossible to carve out any kind of queer spaces. And in the film, like throughout it, the, the only moment when she can talk about her attraction, her one night stand with a woman is in a space that is explicitly queerer yes. than the other conversation she had had. The fact that she's like in bed with her mom and she's like naked. And it's the first time that she can really open up about the fact that she loves a woman. And if you talk about space, is you know queer spaces, it's impossible to fight it, and it's Anna a problem as well. The the queerness angle is is so interesting to me. I I did have that exact notion about how she was nude, mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't figure out whether I was supposed to see it as as a recognition of her being as close to that person. I couldn't realize, I didn't know whether it was a, a country more, cause you know, America, we're, we're all prudes, uh, but obsessed with sex, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. the rest of the world sees nudity as, you know, uh, but now, <laughs> so yeah. I still didn't know quite know what to make of it, especially considering that her mother, is clothed you know she's wearing like a nightgown yeah yeah i i just think it's quite strange and you you do see her like being naked quite a lot in the film it's not the first time you see her naked but the implication in the scene is so much more different is like not to be like metaphorical but she's like nakedness in her you know emotion as well it's like a cruel thing to say but you know it sort of opened up so much more than when she's naked with other men yeah, no, it's in the same. Yeah, like like when she was talking to her mother about her encounter with Laura, and it's like so much more erotic than what you actually see in the film. Like when you see her with Henrik, when you see her with Daniel, in the end, it's feel me- mechanical, and you actually like seeing what takes place. But when she talks to her mother about Laura, and even though you don't really see what they do to each other, just hearing about it and just hearing just like the kind of emotion that she puts into it, it feels like infinitely more erotic and more real and more sensual than what actually shown on screen. Yeah, I think you could even extend that to Ida as Ida as well, because yeah. you, you know she. We've spoken a little bit about how Aurora Clement her so much of her performance is she's just a fantastic listener. Like she's just a mesmerizing she's so listener. Good. Yeah. I wanted to listen to her. <laughs> I mean, she just seems to, she's a great presence in that way. And then sometimes I felt bad because mm-hmm. so many people just like get to your point. <laughs> I shut up. Like Henrik, like I don't care about your wife. But you know, is is that you know is that European discontent? You know, they need someone to talk to. <laughs> They're having a crisis. Like this is just like the the European character just having discontent and needs someone to talk to. On the, on the spewing. Yeah, no, I, and I I uh, I to kind of uh, go back to that too. The other line that really um, also underlines the. Uh, the the queerness in a way for me is um, 
Ida, is it Ida or Ida? I think it's Ida. Uh, I don't know. And she says, uh, speaking about her son, yeah, her son, she says, uh, he'd make you happy. And and you found out that she called off this engagement, or broke the engagement twice. Twice, Um, yeah. And that that line it, I, i'm not going to say ida uh, you know has repressed a certain queerness or or even that her mother has but just the way they speak about those more conventional relationships with such uh mm-hmm. with such um perfunctory a perfunctory tone is 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 like a you know is this sort of is like a different kind of itinerary you know is this sort of what you're supposed to do I think Ida was also saying like oh oh modern women are so difficult like we used to just want to get married to someone nice and then have babies and you know it's a it's a it's a kind of itinerary as well sure and Anna it just follow a totally different kind of itinerary the way she moved the way she travels she's just like totally away from the sort of itinerary that I don't think that. Anna should be following. But it is fascinating because she does seem to maybe want to have children at yeah. some point. Yeah. She's asked that a few different times, which which again I think can speak to that disinterest in in, in a more conventional partnership or something. Yeah. But also uh, speak to her her own um sorry, uh, feminine essence and, and her interest in, in the feminine. I think it's a kind of yearning as well, yearning for some kind of stability. I do think it's interesting that um, like the final scene of the film when she's on the bed and she's listening to the voice messages, you, you can sort of tell who these people are. Some of them you can tell. They could be like her manager or something, but other you yeah. can't really tell. And the film doesn't really make any effort to be like, make a note of who's like saying this thing. And just, and and it's interesting that you can sort of sort of take it upon yourself to guess who these people are. They're actually in Anna's life because she has quite a few messages. It's not like she's not having any friends or people who care about her. You might think that she doesn't have anyone in her life the way she moved throughout the film, but by the end, it's like obviously she sure. has people in her life. But her face when she listens to all of these things, it doesn't change. She doesn't respond to like each message differently or anything. It's just sort of she's going through the messages, which is very interesting to me. Which is why I, I think, again, kind of supports my suggestion that she is more content yeah. when yeah. she's in, in transit than ever being yeah. uh, in one place. Yeah, I, I, you already spoke to it, but that that apartment is it took me a moment to realize, oh, this is her apartment. <laughs> It's actually her house. <laughs> but it's not different. And the camera doesn't make any difference either. It's just, you know, it's film her in the exact way that she's been lying on the bed in various hotels throughout the film. It looks exactly the same. Oh, there's one thing that I want to get to, which is, I guess, the sort of the disappearing of um, Jewish spaces during 1970s era, which I think, like, are kind of crucial to the reading of the film. Um because so even though it's like not specifically say that Anna is like Jewish or anything, but like you can kind of guess that Ida's might be Jewish, the way that she talks about how her sons would never go back to Germany. And Ekeman is like obviously Jewish. And um, I think a lot of the rootlessness in the film 
it come from we talk about queer spaces before and but there's also this this thing about Jewish spaces were disappearing rapidly um, in Europe during the 1970s even in Essen which is the first city that Anna was in yes I read that there was a synagogue there who was actually turned into a um, a shopping mall oh my god it's so I know it's insane it's, it's absolutely insane the way they're sort of dealing with Jewish specific spaces um, so a lot of these were turning into um, shopping malls some were turned into apartment complex a lot of them were being demolished and this is like an uniform thing that having that, that was happening throughout Europe and all the synagogue was just sort of disappearing slowly, which could have add to the kind of loneliness that maybe Ackerman was feeling and that could have been reflected in the meetings of Anna as well. I, I think that gives uh, even more credence to uh, some of the feelings I was having that some of these spaces are sacred as much as they're, you know, conflicted. Yeah. There, there is something, you know, I mean, we've already talked about the, the certain tradition quality, the, the rituals, uh, you know, yeah. maybe not quite sacraments, but, uh, but, or, or not sacraments, sorry. Um, no, no, sacred is right. I mean, you mentioned Ellen Sisu before, and she's actually talked about architecture as being like sacred places. It's tangible. It's sort of, it's, it's not, it's, it's something that you can have like a concrete relationship to the past to your memory. So when things like that were being de- demolished or disappearing, it's like, you know, you're being cut out from your past, from your heritage. But like to hark back to like architecture, um, I do think a lot of the anxiety and sort of trauma coming from Ekumen might have been, you know, something to do with sort of synagogue disappearing mm. um, in the Europe during the 70s. And um, might explain why she felt more at home at New York because there was more of a Jewish community, I guess, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, so the last thing I kind of like to to do on this uh, podcast um, is to, again, put you on the spot and ask, is there, you know, if, if a listener, um, you know, sought out this movie or sought out Ackerman's work, what would you suggest that they look into uh, whether it be theory that you're talking about, whether it be uh, novels, films, it can be kind of any medium, but I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to give maybe not a next step, but maybe a, uh, a way further in for some people. So in terms of readings, um, I would definitely recommend Michel de Sartel, the practice of everyday life. And um, so he's not like explicitly a psychographer, but that book sort of dissects every single aspect of everyday life and um, it sort of exposes the capitalistic and undercurrents of things that we do every day. And he also connects um, sort of space with narrative and storytelling, which I find to be very interesting. And another great book is um, Juliana Bruno, Atlas of Emotions. And Bruno Bruno is a film scholar, but the book actually deals with like so many things. She traverses on many different terrains. You talk about architecture, you talk about films, you talk about performance arts. And um, yeah, I learned so much from that book. And it almost feels like a kind of derive as well, the way she moved through different visual mediums. Where can we find you these days, Spong? I'm on Twitter and um, God, I hate my handle. It's, it's more and artless on Twitter, so you can find me on Twitter. 
So yeah, you you can find me on Twitter at at Snydell. I I am tweeting too much. Uh, I probably need to delete Twitter. We own our. We have nothing no, to no. do. It's okay. But you. But I tweet out dumb things. Uh, Fong tweets out like amazing stills from films that I've never heard of, and then immediately add to a watch list. <laughs> like it's like you and. <laughs> Abby Bender and like a half dozen other people who find like the greatest clothes in movies ever. Like, oh, it's people. there's some people who just are. It's, it's seriously, I don't know how they just find these films, and you are one of them. <laughs> so follow me for the fashion. That's all I do on oh, no. Twitter, just fashion. And, and any other uh, wonderful <laughs> insights. Um, yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter with the word vomit. Uh, oh. I'm on Letterboxd. I'm writing about uh, The Vast of Night this week, which, I, which I've heard is a very entertaining Twilight Zone riff. Oh, yeah, I'm on another podcast. I'm on the regular film stage show. We are talking about the social network. <laughs> I, thank you again to uh, Fong Lee for joining me uh, today. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful to talk about uh, talk about trains and architecture and and <laughs> numbness. And um, if you'd like to see other uh, challenging, extremely rewarding films, uh, Mubi is a great place for that. And you can try again a trial for thirty days. Uh, of that by going to movie.com slash filmstage. Thank you again, and we will see you on the next intermission.